Right on, we're in Matthew chapter 12. You can turn there with me in your Bibles this morning. Jumping back into Matthew chapter 12, actually, uh, we're going to pick things up at verse 22. And uh, back you up a little bit here. Matthew chapter 12 tells us the accounts of, of three conflicts that Jesus had with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, those who were the gatekeepers and the doorkeepers of Judaism. And last Sunday, we looked at the first of these three conflicts. Today, we're going to look at the last two. But uh, last Sunday, we looked at that first conflict. It had to do with the Sabbath and Jesus' treatment of the Sabbath and what he said about the Sabbath. And it was what he said about the Sabbath and what the Pharisees uh, saw him doing on the Sabbath that was really the straw that broke the camel's back for them. It was the tipping point. It was after that conflict with Jesus that the Pharisees went out and they conspired to destroy him because he said that he was Lord of the Sabbath, because he said that he was the owner of men. And this morning we're going to look at the, the second conflict and the third conflict that the Pharisees had with Jesus. Um, as Matthew's telling us about the kingdom, the operation of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom, the offer of the kingdom. And this is really uh, the king being rejected or him being in conflict with the nation of, and the people of Israel in many ways. And so uh, these two conflicts that we're going to look at this morning have to do with the source of Jesus' power, where that comes from, and the demand that they give him a miraculous sign. And so check it out with me. Verse 22, it says this. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So real simple demon possessed man is brought to Jesus. It's serious. It's obviously very serious. The man is mute. He's blind. You can't, you can't argue about his condition. No one can deny his condition and not only that, no one can deny the healing work of Jesus in this man's life. This man who seems to have been bound by this spirit for some period of time. And it's evident that Jesus healed him because Matthew tells us he can speak and he can see after this healing. And the whole scene is so powerful in front of all this crowd and everyone that's there that the crowd that has been watching him, the crowd that has been listening to Jesus, the crowd that has seen all the miraculously, miraculous things that he has done, is finally comes to this point where they say this in the amazement of their hearts, could this be him? Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah, the long uh, one that we have hoped for, the one that is the promised one? But verse 24 tells us, and when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Beelzebul is, an, is a name for Satan. It means Lord of the house or Lord of the flies, or it even means Lord of the idols, God of the idols, Lord of the idols. And so essentially, the, the Pharisees attribute this miraculous uh, work that Jesus did to the power of Satan, the work of God to Satan, to the devil. You know, I, I think about these guys and, and, and I just wonder what else they could have said. I mean, Jesus is so powerfully affecting so many people that, that they had to come up with some sort of explanation to, to explain what was going on. And either they were lying and they knew it. I mean, lying and they knew it, or they were so spiritually blind that they themselves were unable to distinguish between good and bad. And Jesus is going to talk about that in a few minutes. We're going to see this further in the passage, that, that, a, that a, a good tree bears good fruit. They, maybe they weren't even able to distinguish between good and bad anymore, anymore. But whatever it was, they were seeking and trying to turn people away from Jesus, and they were seeking and trying to maintain their their control over the people. So verse 25 tells us, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom that every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. 
How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. I, I love that Matthew just tells us Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew the thoughts and intentions of their heart. He knew the wrestling match that was going on with them. He, he knew the things that were rolling around in their hearts and in their minds. And he said this, if I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan, then Satan is fighting against himself. It's simple logic. Jesus says, let's just talk about this logically for a moment. What you are suggesting defies logic. It's illogical. And not only was their accusation illogical, but it was also hypocritical. See, the, the, the Pharisees had certain exorcists within the country, within the area that they endorsed. Certain men who they said, yeah, this guy is, you know, Pharisee approved exorcist for casting out demons. And so Jesus says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by, by whom do your sons cast them out? He's saying, come on. If I'm doing this miraculous power uh, by the power of the devil, when I freed a man from demonic possession, then what about these men that you endorse? By whose power are they doing it? Verse 28, Jesus said, but if by the spirit of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, if on the other hand, Jesus says, I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then you got to acknowledge that I represent the kingdom that the kingdom of God is among you. So Jesus said in verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so not only was their charge against Jesus false and inconsistent, it really had the nature of rebellion and resistance to the kingdom of God and the things that they were, they were saying. They, they were living, these men, these Pharisees, were living in rebellion against the kingdom of God. That's why they attempted to attack Jesus because their, their own hearts were rebelling against the kingdom of God. And in fact, it, it, was, it was them who were colluding with Satan based on the accusations that they were making against Jesus. They, they were against Jesus and they were doing the work of him who scatters. And then Jesus said this in verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Interesting verses. Verses that it's like, if you floated around the church, you've had discussions. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is this unpardonable sin? What is this uh, sin that cannot be forgiven? And so again, let's just get our heads around the context a little bit and what's happening in this story. This man has been healed of a demon that made him blind and mute. The Pharisees have attributed the miraculous power that Jesus worked in setting this man free to Satan. And now Jesus gives this, this heavy word uh, to the Pharisees. They spoke Illogically, they spoke hypocritically about him. They were, and they were in danger, according to what Jesus says here, of really jeopardizing their souls for eternity. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, when he died for the sin of mankind, when he died for my sin, when he died for your sin, he died not only for you and for I, but he died for the sin of the entire world. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus. Died on the cross, buried, and rose from the dead. That is the gospel. And Jesus died, the scripture tells us, for every sin that every person would ever commit in all of history. The sins that preceded the cross and the sins that would come after the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, the work was done, every sin was paid for. And that's a message that we should boldly proclaim, that we should tell people, that we should tell everyone, your sins are forgiven. The price is paid. Jesus paid the price. You are free from sin. But Jesus says this. There is a sin that 
cannot be forgiven. A sin that will leave you eternally condemned. A sin that will leave you eternally separated from God. And it's that of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, if you sin against the Father or against the Son, that can be forgiven. But if you sin against the Holy Spirit, in this blasphemy, it, it will damn you eternally. It's the one sin that is unforgivable, that is unpardonable. Now, now as I read this, like as I look at this story, as I read this, I don't think that the Pharisees had necessarily committed that sin. I don't think Jesus is saying you've committed that sin. He's giving them a warning that they are, you know, coming close enough to a line that they should be aware of what's going on in their own hearts and in their lives. You know, this is Jesus who usually has, you know, words of hope and grace and love and the proclamation of good news and telling people about the kingdom. And instead, he gives a warning to make it evident that these men were approaching a line in their lives. They were, they were nearing the, the crossing of a, of a boundary for which there is no return. And, I, you know, as I read this, I actually think, you know, I, I don't think that it's true even in the context to define blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as attributing the work of Jesus to Satan. I, I actually don't think that that's what Jesus is saying here. That blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to attribute the work of Jesus to Satan. There, there's certainly, uh, that's part and parcel of it, but that is not the full de definition of what it is. That's a sin against Jesus. To say Jesus did something by the power of the devil. That's a sin against the Son of Man. And Jesus said, whoever sins against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So the question is then, what is the warning? It's an interesting passage of scripture. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Uh, what, what the Pharisees were doing in this, con in this, in this context of, of conflict with Jesus was this, is that from their hearts, really, what they were refusing was the king. What they were refusing was the kingdom of God. See, Jesus had performed uh, the miraculous in their presence. He had demonstrated the power of the kingdom, the power of God, and they were refusing the kingdom in their own lives. And if ultimately they per persisted in that, if they continued in resistance of the kingdom, then the end result is sin against the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness of sin, Jesus says. You know, whenever I consider the question, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You know where my mind always goes is to this point where I think, well, what is the task? What is the job? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? How is that defined in scripture? What does he do? What is the work that the Spirit of God has been given? Well, John's gospel tells us that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world in regards to sin righteousness, and the judgment to come. John actually said this, John 16, verse 8 through 11. Let me read it to you. Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, said, When he comes, he will convict the world, the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. See, the work of the Holy Spirit is this. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convince you, to convince the entire world of their need for Jesus. He points them to Jesus constantly. He points at, at sin and says, there's a solution for your sin. It's in the person of Jesus. He died for your sin. He points us to righteousness and he says, here's the standard of righteousness. It's found in a man, King Jesus. If you don't live a life as perfect as he did, you, you don't meet God's, God's requirements of righteousness. He, he points us to the judgment that is to come and says, there's a judge and his name is Jesus. See, the spirit of God is pointing us constantly, constantly and pointing the entire world to Jesus. And we can respond to that work of the Holy Spirit and we can surrender and give our lives to King Jesus. We can bow the knee, as I like to say. Bow before the King. Surrender to Him. 
or we can resist the work of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, if we resist him, then we are resisting the only hope for salvation, which is Jesus. And therefore, to resist Jesus culminates in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, who is seeking to bring you to Jesus. You know, I'm reminded of the scripture that says this, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You know, throughout the scripture, we're told today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And you know, as I, I, as I was just meditating on this this week and thinking about uh, this text and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you know, I just felt so strongly that I needed to emphasize this, that, that, that potentially... There are people here that are resisting the kingdom of God, resisting the person of Jesus, resisting the offer of salvation, and you've been doing it for a long time. A long time. You know, I honestly think that when we talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, those who are most in danger are those who have been sitting in a church for a long time. Like the Pharisees. They knew it all. They had all the answers. They lived the life that looked like they had relationship with God. And you know, you can sit in the church your whole life. You can grow up in the church. You can have a head full of knowledge. You can know the routine. You know, we come together, we greet, we sing some songs. I get my coffee, two creams and a sugar. I tune out when the pastor gets up there. And I resist the Holy Spirit. We laugh, but that last one's the dangerous one. But I resist the Holy Spirit. You can know the routine. You can know the Bible stories. You can know the gospel. You can know the message of the cross, and you think that knowing is enough. That doing the routine, that playing the game is enough. And the Bible never said that knowing the message of gospel is salvation. The Bible says that believing in Christ Jesus is salvation. And true repentance bears fruit. You know, I, I, I couldn't, I, I, was, I was laughing with Lisa. I said, hey, there's, there's a verse. It's somewhere in the Bible. It says something like the sun that melts the wax, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And so we were like, she's like, I don't think it's in the Bible. I said, no, it's in the Bible. It's there. And so we were going back and forth. And, and then I finally, I just, you know, I Googled it and it was Charles Spurgeon. It's one of the ones who said that <laughs> my, my wife was right. Again. Yeah, that's right. Who was that? Can you get up and leave? No. <laughs> But look at Spurgeon said this, and it's a famous quote. You've heard it said in different sorts of ways. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. The same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. And boy, you can, you can sit in church and you can just let your heart get harder and harder and harder. You can resist and you can resist and you can resist the work of the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel. God give us soft hearts to the message of Jesus. You know, this, this week down on Wednesday night, I just so enjoyed the conversation with people and and one of the things is we were, we were looking at the story of Ruth and Boaz. We were in Ruth chapter 2. Uh, Boaz said to Ruth, he said, you stay in my field. Don't go to any other fields. I'm going to put protect. There's protection in this field. And, you know, we talked about the gospel a little bit and the need to stay in the field of redemption. To glean the field, to like Ruth did, go around and just continue to glean and to pick up facts always about the gospel, to be learning about the gospel, to be learning about the story of redemption in our lives, the, the work of the cross, and to never leave that field, but to always find our food there, to always gather and, and find our daily bread and the story of Jesus' salvation for us. The same sun which 
Melts wax, hardens the clay. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that persistent rejection of Jesus, even though the Holy Spirit is convicting. He's pointing. He's drawing you. He's telling you the truth about sin and about righteousness and the judgment to come. And as he as he demonstrates the meaning of the kingdom to you and as he demonstrates to you the power of Jesus and you resist. You know, the Lord actually said in Genesis chapter six, my spirit will not always strive with man. Uh, We want the spirit of God to strive with us, to wrestle with sin in our lives, to wrestle with our heart of resistance to wrestle and and, and take down that heart of rebellion that each of us has. And and, and the Lord has said, my spirit will not always strive with man. See, there there comes a point when the spirit will not seek to inform you about your need for salvation. And so the warning here to the Pharisees and the warning to you and I is this, is do not ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit. Do not ignore him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't play games with him if he is drawing you. You know, there's a great, great story told that I ran across in my studies uh, that happened during World War II. An American aircraft carrier and a battleship and several other ships were patrolling the icy waters of the North Atlantic they were searching out for German U-boats and uh, throughout the day they sent up a number of planes and finally towards the end of the day they sent up a small squadron of four planes to go and search the area and they were given a certain amount of time to go out. Well, while they were in there, the leader of the squadron decided, you know, we'll just go a little further. We'll look a little more. Maybe we'll find some targets. We can, you know, shoot them up and the whole deal and maybe find the enemy. Well, as the sun set, before the planes had returned back to the aircraft carrier, history tells us that a German armada entered the area, that area of the sea. And the American fleet was like massively outgunned and outnumbered and in trouble. And so without the pilots knowing, radio silence was ordered between the Americans and between their ships and between the aircraft while the aircraft were still in flight. The problem was the aircraft had gone further than they were supposed to. And and because they stayed out in the air longer than was planned or or was supposed to, uh, they got low on fuel. And as they came back to the area where the aircraft carrier was and the battleship and all of these things, the pilots radioed and there was no response. They tried again and again and again and no response. They asked the ships to turn on their lights. They asked the aircraft carrier to turn on the landing strip so that they could see where to land. But the lights didn't go on, and there was no response from the ships. You see, turning on the lights and talking on the radio would have put everybody in jeopardy, would have put the ships in jeopardy, would have put thousands of sailors' lives in jeopardy. And so the story is recorded how the men aboard the aircraft carrier watched in horror as four American planes eventually ran out of fuel and just crashed into the sea and the men lost their lives. You know, when we hear the message of salvation, we have to know this. Today is the day of salvation. When the spirit prods and pokes and draws us to Jesus, we have to know that today is the day of salvation. And if the Holy Spirit is sharing the message of the gospel with you and making Jesus Christ known to you. He's speaking to your heart and you're hearing the word of the Lord. You're you're all hearing the word of the Lord this morning. Then you need to know this, that there will will come a time in life when the the commander-in-chief will order radio silence. You know, the lights will get turned off. You won't be able to find your way home. the potential of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and reaching this point where there is no hope. And you know, I think about the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is hope. It's love. It's joy. It's forgiveness. It's about citizenship in the kingdom of God. 
and the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven. And, you know, the truth is, is only a fool would re- resist such a gift. It's an awesome offer from God with really, in so many ways, nothing to lose and everything to gain. And as we consider our, our, our story, the, the case of the Pharisees was this. They were resisting, resisting, resisting in their hearts the kingdom of God. Resisting the message of the kingdom. They had come to a point in their resistance where they were now verbalizing and they were saying, Jesus does the work of Satan. Jesus does the work of the devil. They, they were saying these These things, and they had come to a dangerous point in their life because their lips were verbalizing the resistance that was happening in their heart. You know, your your, your lips expose where your heart is at with King Jesus. Today's the day of salvation. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Powerful things Jesus says about our words. You know, it makes me think of words that come out of my mouth. Things that I say, things that you and I say. We're going to give an account, it says, for every word that comes out of our mouth. It's a bit of a, a scary thought, but Jesus says this. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, in context here, in the context of the story, speaking against the Holy Spirit is something that is conceived in the heart. That is what Jesus is saying. When someone says, you know, I'm not going to believe what's being shared this morning. I'm not going to believe in the message of Jesus. They do so because in their heart, they are refusing the kingdom. Therefore, they verbalize. You know, the mercy of God is so great. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is so awesome. The the message of the cross, that there is no sin under heaven that cannot receive mercy, that's true. Except the sin that refuses mercy. Except the sin that, that refuses grace, that refuses to bow the knee to King Jesus. I mean, if you will have none of Jesus' grace then there's no way to forgive you. And the lips of the mouth express the thoughts of the heart. You know, it's just like a tree. The tree exposes. Good fruit means good tree. The the disciple, or the, the Pharisees, sorry, were saying, good fruit, bad tree, about Jesus. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Good trees bear good fruit. You gotta be consistent. Bad trees, evil trees, bear bad, evil fruit. The fruit exposes the root. And he says here, the the words of your mouth will condemn you or they will justify you. Reminds me of Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. The the heart and the mouth are tied together in the story of salvation. And so Jesus appealed to these Pharisees. Don't attribute good fruit to a bad tree, to a corrupt tree. That's what they were doing. They said the good fruit of a man being healed from demonic possession was by the power of Satan. And so he says, be consistent. Be consistent because by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Crazy, he calls them vipers. Not the first time in the gospel of Matthew that he calls these men vipers. 
snakes in the grass, striking out. You know, as I, as I just think about this text, like I just find, I find this a tough text. And you know, I wasn't like, woohoo, I'm going to preach the word this morning. I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is awesome. But it's hard because you cannot read this passage of scripture without it searching your own heart. Do you feel that even right here this morning? You can't go through a passage like this without the Holy Spirit just poking and prodding and, and reminding you of, of his searching force that he's applying to your heart and applying to your life. And, and I think about the gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same to yesterday, today, and forever. And so as the spirit is searching and poking and prodding, it's important that we don't harden our heart. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. And it's at that point that the third conflict began. The demand for a miraculous sign. Look at verse 38. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know, you, you read this and it's like, seriously, you want a sign? What more do you want? There was a blind, mute man. Jesus, like, opened his eyes and loosed his tongue and set him free from an evil spirit. You want a sign? You want to see more? I, I mean... The truth was, these, these dudes were hard in their heart towards Jesus and the kingdom of God. The convincing sign that they wanted him to perform had already been performed. They asked for a sign, but the truth was, they were not prepared to accept anything that he did. You know, he could have done anything right there at that moment in time. And it would not be sufficient because their hearts were hard. They call him teacher. But I really think that it was an insult. I think there was, you know, some attitude, teacher, you know. Because they weren't going to accept what he was teaching. So Jesus said this, the one sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah. Jonah came preaching. He came preaching a judgment against Nineveh. Jesus came preaching mercy and grace. Jonah, for... Part of his story was disobedient before he followed through with, God, with what God had called him to do. Jesus came and he did everything perfectly obedient to the will of his father. Jonah finally, after much resistance, obeyed the Lord and he went and he preached a message of repentance to the city of Nineveh. Jesus came with a message of repentance and salvation for the whole world. A prophet greater than Jonah was in their midst. And yet you do not respond. You know, when I think about Jonah, I often think of him. I think he's like underrated. That's why my son's named Jonah. Because I really believe that Jonah was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Because one message in a city with hundreds of thousands of people turned in repentance at one message. God worked through that man's life. And yet Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is in your midst. I mean, he's not picking on Jonah when he says, he is picking someone great in the story of the nation of Israel. And so Jesus refused to perform a sign, but he did do this. He promised a sign that was going to come. Look at verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I love how just Jesus says little things that just confirm the word of God. If you don't believe Jonah uh, was swallowed by a whale and spent three days and three nights there, then you don't believe Jesus. Because Jesus just said that he spent three days and three nights there in the heart of that whale. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection. You know, when you read the story of Jonah, it's quite possible that Jonah died in the belly of the whale and then was brought back to life when he was puked up on the beach. The one and only sign Jesus promised as a validation of his life and his ministry and of the kingdom of God is this, the resurrection. The resurrection. The message of the resurrection is so important to the message of the gospel. 
I mean, think about it. How do you know the cross accomplished everything that we suppose? The answer? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do you know God was satisfied with the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross? The answer? Death could not hold him down. The resurrection. He was raised to life. Are my sins really forgiven? The answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes. God accepted the work of the cross. The resurrection proves Jesus is the Messiah and that the work of the cross is complete. So Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a miraculous sign. I'm going to promise you this. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and nights, so the son of man will be in the belly of the earth. The resurrection. Verse 41, Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and they will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater. Someone greater than Jonah is here. See, the people of Nineveh received a sign. They heard the preaching of Jonah. They repented straight up. And really, this was, I would say this, like the more I thought about it, this is a scathing comparison from Jesus for the Pharisees. Why? Because the people of Nineveh were the hated enemies, as we know it from the story of Jonah. They were godless Gentiles. And they were people in Jonah's mind who were not worthy of salvation and not worthy of hearing the message of repentance. In Jonah's mind, they deserved destruction and the judgment to come. And as Jesus spoke these words, he, he said, those Gentiles, those Ninevites who, who Jonah hated will rise up and they will judge you. Because they responded to the message and someone is great, greater than Jonah is here and yet you refuse me. And as Jesus spoke these words, I really think that he was speaking judgment against the nation. The nation of Israel, that generation that, would, that was refusing to listen to him. He gives a second comparison and it illustrates this further. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment of this generation, with this generation, and condemn it. For she came to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus refers back to a story from 1 Kings chapter 10 that you can read about in your Bible that tells us of the account of the queen of Sheba coming, cruising up from Africa to come and see Solomon. She had heard of the wonder of his kingdom. She had heard of his wisdom, the splendor, his majesty. And uh, so she came to see it and take it all in. And 1 Kings chapter 10 tells us that uh, as she was packing up to leave, she said to Solomon about him and about his kingdom, everything that I have seen and heard exceeded all of my expectations. They exceeded all of the reports that I've heard everything that I heard prior to this visit, half, half of it wasn't even told to me. What, what I saw blew my mind. And Jesus says, now one greater than Solomon is in your midst. I mean, think about Solomon. We know his story. He, he was given a wisdom from God. But what's Jesus called? He's called the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. You know, Solomon was the greatest king in terms of splendor in the history of the nation, Jesus, he is the king of kings. Solomon spoke practically, you know, all the things, all the wisdom and knowledge he applied. Jesus, the scripture tells us, spoke creation into existence. Solomon gave gifts to the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. Before she packed up the leave, he gave her gifts. Well, the scripture tells us that, that Jesus is able to do exceedingly more abundantly than we can ask or we can imagine. He is the gift giver. Something greater than Solomon is here. Again, the, the queen of the south was a Gentile and she... She left her own kingdom and she traveled far and wide in a day and age when that was not easy to come and see and experience all the splendor of the kingdom. And Jesus said, she's going to rise up and she's going to judge this, this generation because someone with 
greater than Solomon is in your presence. And you resist. You resist. And so these examples from Jesus, they they illustrate Israel's rejection of him. They illustrate the fact that the Gentiles, you and I, the whole world will come to Jesus. But they also, most importantly, illustrate the importance that we do not resist the message of King Jesus. He's greater than Jonah. And a wicked city like Nineveh repented at his teaching. And he's greater than Solomon. And a great queen during that time traveled and took risks to come and see all of his kingdom. And how much more should we repent at the teaching of Jesus and give everything to follow him? Jesus says this in verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. Now now he's he's just going to circle back around. He's going to give a lesson based on what happened with this demon-possessed man. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first so also it will be with this evil generation. Real insight into how demonic possession works even from Jesus here. That when an evil spirit comes out of someone, that there is a need for something to fill that void. That that spirit itself will go and it will seek and it will find rest. It will, it will seek to house itself somewhere. And so Jesus gives this warning when a spirit comes out, There is a need for something else to take residence where that spirit was. And if nothing takes residence, if the house is left clean and swept and empty, the spirit will do its search. And when it can't find a home, it'll grab some other spirits and it will come in. And that person will be left off in a worse case than they were at first. Jesus says this generation will be like that. Think now. He's talking about Jonah. He's talking about Solomon. He's talking about the judgment of resisting the kingdom. And he says, for this generation, that will be the case. See, follow the flow of what Jesus is saying. He is speaking against a wicked generation. You know, Israel in many ways had cleaned up its idolatry after being sent off to Babylon and and exile and coming back. And they were a nation that was seeking uh, to leave behind their idolatry that had once plagued them that you read about early on in the Old Testament in so many ways. So as they came back into a land, they were into the land. They were, they were a nation and a people that had made a reformation in their heart. They had, they had cleaned up. They had cleaned up a lot of things. But what they had not experienced was regeneration. They had not been born again. They had not been made moo, new. Moo. They had not been made moo. They had not been made new. Swept the nation clean of idols, but the thing was this, is seven times the demons would sweep back in, Jesus is warning, if you reject me. See, Jesus is speaking primarily to the nation, but it speaks to you and I as well. You know, I think about the church. You know, the goal of the church and the message of, of Jesus is not simply to get people to clean up their lives. It's to just clean up your lives and you can come in here. That's not the message. You know, so often we're distracted by wanting to do things that help clean up things in society. Those are good things. It's good to do that. We should be about all those works. But they should not be the primary work of God's people, the church. The primary work is this, is that people need to be born again, not clean up their lives. They need a radical transformation that only happens when Jesus Christ comes into your heart and into your life. Yeah, I, I just look at our world, right? I look at North America. What a mess, right? We look at the whole system in the States, my American friends. Wow. Brutal, right? It's like, wow. If you ever had any hope in politics, it should be gone now. <laughs> Amen? Like, it should be gone. Seriously. It's a disaster. It's like the greater of two evils. I don't know. Whatever. 
And uh, so I won't get too political here. You know what I'm thinking. But the point is this. The hope is not government. The hope is not social network. You know, the hope is not, you know, redistributing wealth or this or that. I'm telling you, the, the hope is Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel. See, the work of the gospel works from the inside out. It, it, it transforms us on the inside and it changes the fruit that hangs from our lives on the outside. Jesus had cast out demons. But it was not enough that the person be freed from the demonic. Something else had to change too. That otherwise the power of evil was going to come back. They had to submit to King Jesus. I mean, it's not enough to clean the house. You got to have the right tenant. I mean, if you're a landowner, you got to have the right tenant. The right person dwelling and living there. And the, and the Pharisees were proud of the clean house. And what they didn't know was that their own hearts were empty. That there was void. And that they were in great danger of the spirits that were going to come and take residence as they resisted Jesus. They had religion without regeneration. They had, re, you know, all the rules without being born again. They cleaned the upside, outside of the cup without having the right thing on the inside. And, you know, as I think about the church, you know, one of the things is, is I mean, it's like fishing. I, I love fishing. I got great fishing stories from this summer. They're like unbelievable. <laughs> They're unbelievable that you can like stand in a boat with your brother, with your nice link caught in the net, high-five each other, and then watch the thing go through the side, bounce off the edge of your boat, and back into the water. <laughs> and I learned you can't clean a fish until you actually catch it. <laughs> you can't clean a fish until you catch it. And we are called to be fishers of men. Way too often, as God's people, as his representatives on earth, we want to clean the fish before we catch them. We're called to be fishers of men. Catch the fish. People need to be born again. They need someone to tell them about Jesus. And the work of the gospel is from the inside out. So we'll wrap up here these last few verses. It says this, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, I love it when Matthew says that because he wants you to stop and think. Stop and think about this. His mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said to them, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You know, Jesus' earthly family, his mother, his, his siblings in many ways, or at least for certain points of time, did not understand him, did not understand his ministry. Um, and Jesus was aware of that. We read about Jesus. One of the things we see about him is, is that he didn't want the honor that comes from men. He had, he had no interest in it. Um, and I, I think probably his family showed up here because they were concerned for him. They probably showed up, uh, you know, the... Uh, elsewhere, we read that they, they come because they think that he's out of his mind at one point in time. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if this is the exact same spot, but th they come because I think that they're concerned about him and this response that is going out to him. Maybe word has already spread. Those Pharisees, man, they have conspired to destroy you. So we're going to come and we're going to help. And Jesus, as he said these things, he, he wasn't being disrespectful to his family. What he was emphasizing was this, the, the family of God. He said, whoever, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. Interesting, no mention of father, of course, because his father didn't have an earthly father. His father's in heaven. But whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You know, as we wrap up here, I, I just think the key word is right there in verse 50, and it's the word that it says this, whoever, whoever. You see that elsewhere in the scripture. Whoever believes in me, I will no wise cast out, you know. 
And it reminds me of where we spent a lot of time last week in just talking about that offer from Jesus that's at the end of chapter 11 that says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus, you know, if there's one message you should hear this morning, it's this, is whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my mother and my sister. You know where I want to be counted as I think about this whole thing about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, evil spirits coming and taking residence and all that scary stuff that I don't want any part of and I don't want you to have any part of. What I want to know is how do I be a member of that family? the family that Jesus calls mother, brothers, and sisters. And he says it's this. He says it's this. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. Whoever. The wide open offer. Open to everyone. Totally inclusive. An invitation to say, whoever does the will of my father, what was the will of the father? Jesus tells us elsewhere that you believe in me whom the father has sent. That, that is it. That is it right there to do the will of God. You know, if you ever thought, well, what's the will of God in my life? The will of God for you is this, that you believe in Jesus Christ whom the father has sent. That's salvation, man. The rest is all awesome from there. The rest is all awesome. And so Jesus, is he, is he, in this whole situation, talking about blasphemy and the demonic spirits and everything, what, he, what he's doing, right, as he wraps up the discussion is this. He's encouraging everyone right there to trust in him, to believe in him. And I think often, I think as we consider this, we're going to start to see in Matthew a bit of a shift that it's going to change from being nationalistic in this proclamation of the kingdom to becoming individualistic. If the nation wouldn't come to him, then he would appeal to individuals to come to him. The message would be proclaimed to the world. And you know, if you believe in Jesus, whom the Lord has sent, then you know what Jesus does? He just embraces you as his family. He's not ashamed to call you his brother. It's not a shame to call you his sister, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 2. See, my brothers, my sisters, my mother, are those who hear my word and who do the will of the Father. They believe in me. That's my family, Jesus said. Don't you want to be a part of that family? Aren't you glad that you're counted a part of that family? Believe in Jesus. That's the work.